From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Omaha World Herald reporter Paul Hamill about the recent indictment of Representative Jeff Fortenberry. I think it all comes down to whether or not he can still be an effective representative. You know, and if if the charges get dropped, you know, the prosecution is disgraced. Yeah, he could probably do that. They've put together quite a bit of evidence, and a lot of it is recorded phone calls. I think it's going to be tough for him to hang in there. We talk about Fortenberry's achievements, his controversies, and what is going on in the federal case against him right now. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. Hi, and you're listening to Car Free Midwest. We're a podcast based in Omaha, Nebraska, exploring the stories, barriers, and joys of getting around the Midwest without a car. Our goal is to build a community around more transportation equity and less car dependency. I'm Sarah Johnson. And I'm Joshua LeBure. We'll be here every other week with interviews, topics, and documentary pieces covering all things transportation. And we'll be talking a lot about bikes, e-bikes, and cargo bikes, because once you get to know us, you'll find that that's what we're obsessed with. So subscribe to Car Free Midwest wherever you listen to podcasts. A production of Figure Podcasts. With support from Mode Shift Omaha. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Omaha World Herald reporter Paul Hamill about the recent federal indictment against Representative Jeff Fortenberry. Later in the show, critic Jared Charles will give a preview of upcoming holiday films to keep an eye out for. Representative Fortenberry has represented Nebraska's first congressional district since 2005. On October 19, 2021, it was announced that Fortenberry was being investigated over illegal campaign contributions that his 2016 campaign received from the Nigerian-born, Paris-based billionaire Gilbert Shiguri. A federal grand jury in Los Angeles indicted him on one count of scheming to falsify and conceal material facts and two counts of making false statements to federal investigators. Paul Hamill has been covering the story for the World Herald, and he's here today to walk us through who Fortenberry is and what is going on with the case. Here is our conversation. I want to start, before we get into the uh, most recent stuff, to try to paint a picture of Jeff Fortenberry, the man and the representative. And so I guess I want to start with this idea that, you know, legislative legacies often get overlooked when people enter popular culture in more kind of ridiculous ways, like, I don't know, Gerald Ford falling or George W. Bush misspeaking. And Fortenberry seemed like he kind of was, he almost had a moment like that where his cultural legacy before this current indictment might have been that he was the congressman who hates googly eyes and fart jokes. And so uh, can, can you start with that story? Can you recount what happened with his war over a, a UNL professor liking a tweet that mocked him? Uh, you know, I didn't really cover that story, but, you know, it was uh, um, a Democratic uh, activist who defaced one of his campaign signs in his front yard and put uh, 
what was described as googly eyes on on his face and you know called him fartenberry so it you know it was prosecuted by the city of lincoln i believe it was uh, dismissed uh, but yeah fart fortenberry's known as you know he's very catholic uh very uh recently he's been very involved with uh, trying to help religious minorities in the middle east uh particularly the yazidis who were persecuted by isis pretty awfully and uh there's a, quite a large yazidi uh community in lincoln um so he's taken a lot of uh I guess pride or credit for helping this religious minority. Um, I mean, he's he he has a safe seat. I mean, it's not like Link. It's not like Omaha's second district seat. Uh, Republicans are strong in in the first district. I mean, you've got Lincoln, which is a pretty democratic stronghold, but you've got other communities like uh, Columbus and Norfolk and Beatrice, Nebraska city that are very Republican and they consistently send Republicans to Congress. And Fortenberry was really viewed as a shoe in, um, this next time around. I mean, he had a challenge in 2020 by a state Senator from Lincoln, uh, Kate Bowles, who, uh, who ran hard but got COVID toward the end of the campaign and then um, kind of faded at the end, I guess. Um, he's being challenged this time by another uh, state senator from Lincoln, Patty Panzing Brooks, who has uh, been very active in criminal justice issues and was uh, active in closing down the beer stores in White Clay, Nebraska. So. I mean, she's got a record to run on. I'm sure she'll be painted uh, as, as pretty liberal, um, but she'll have an uphill battle to to win in, in a district that's that's really still pretty dominant Republican, even after redistricting. Yeah. Well, in, in another district that, or another recent event that seems to bear some insight into Fortenberry was uh, there were some national headlines made when he, following the January 6th uh, riots, insurrection, whatever word we're calling it, he would repeatedly use the emergency duress button in his Capitol office, not because there was an emergency, but just so he could test the response time of the United States <laughs> Capitol Police, which that can't have made him a lot of friends with the Capitol Police, right? Right, right. Yeah, I think he's... Uh He's tried not to be, I guess, uh, as supportive as Trump as maybe some other Congress representatives have been. I mean, I think he, um, you know, he, he gets the, you know, as opposed to our other two uh, congressional representatives, he's less conservative. I mean, not dramatically so, but but less. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think there's some, well, I know there's some in the Republican Party who who wouldn't mind seeing him not, you know, run for re-election or get real, you know, not have somebody else uh, represent the Republican Party uh, out of Lincoln and uh, eastern Nebraska area because he isn't, you know, as supportive of Trump as others. 
Well, so then in, in late October this year, Fortenberry posted an odd video of himself and his wife and his dog in a truck driving through a cornfield where he seemed to try to get ahead of the upcoming indictment. Uh, but ultimately, he was charged with what, lying to federal authorities about illegal campaign contributions made to his 2016 reelection campaign. So, I mean, what, what exactly are the nature of the charges and his alleged behavior? Well, uh, the feds uh, launched an investigation out in California in uh, 2000 and I think it was 12 uh, when they saw some suspicious wire transfers from a, a Nigerian billionaire. <laughs> really, it was quite a international story. Uh, the Nigerian billionaire's name is Gilbert Shiguri. And he's got a pretty controversial past. He had to repay a bunch of money to the Nigerian government that was apparently not uh, obtained uh, quite legally. Uh, he was on a no-fly list for a while until he was cleared of, of, of being linked to Hezbollah. But um, they saw some uh, transfers from this Shiguri to the United States. And uh, the, the idea, uh, the concern was this money was going to U.S. politicians. And that turned out to be true. They, they found that uh, Shiguri had given $180,000 to four uh, American politicians, including Fortenberry, including, you know, then U.S. Representative Lee Terry. Um, Mitt Romney got some money, too, for his uh, 2012 uh, presidential run. Um, and there was also a $50,000 loan Shiguri had made to uh, then uh, U.S. Secretary of Transportation, Ray LaHood, who apparently was having money troubles, um, a loan that was really never repaid, well, it was never repaid until uh, the feds confronted LaHood about it. So in the in the uh, course of that, they they traced the money to some people in Los Angeles who had given uh, what they call conduit contributions to Fortenberry. Um, it was a Los Angeles doctor and a group of other Lebanese Americans who had invited Fortenberry to a fundraiser out in Los Angeles in February of 2014. Um, I'm sorry, 2016 and gave him about $30,000. Well, that money originated from this billionaire, Shiguri, and had been sent through a conduit associate in Washington, D.C. who sent it to this person who was organizing the fundraiser in Los Angeles. Well, donations from foreign uh, nationals to American political campaigns are illegal also illegal to accept such donations or knowingly accept. Uh, I don't know if you remember back in the day, TransCanada gave some money to then Governor Dave Heinemann, and they once that came out, they had to give the money back and apologize and this and that. But uh, you know, the suspicion was that Gurry was trying to influence, you know, American policy toward the Middle East. He's um, of Lebanese descent. Um, so the FBI launched an investigation and they got people involved to cooperate with them. 
including the person who organized the infamous fundraiser in Los Angeles where Fortenberry got this money. Well, uh, two years after, you know, he got this money, uh, Fortenberry's up for re-election again and called um, this fundraising guy in Los Angeles and says, hey, can you organize another fundraiser for me? Because, uh, you know, $30,000 is nothing to sniff at. That's pretty good money. And as we all know, I mean, if you're going to run for Congress, you need money. And these congressmen spend a lot of time raising money. Um, and, but what Fortenberry did know is by that time, this fundraiser was cooperating with the FBI. So here's where the story gets interesting. Um, the FBI had this fundraiser guy call Fortenberry back. Um, and they wired the, the telephone call. And the, the fundraiser, you know, told Fortenberry, you know, that money we gave you two years ago came from this associate in Washington, D.C. The word was probably came from this Gilbert Shiguri, who Fortenberry was least familiar with. And according to the FBI, Fortenberry was familiar that he lived in Paris, so he was a foreign national that made this money illegal. That started the wheels turning. Uh, a year later, FBI guys showed up on Fortenberry's front steps in his house in Lincoln and said, hey, we want to talk to you about this Gilbert Shiguri. And according to the indictments, Fortenberry said he didn't know anything about that money coming from Gilbert Seguri or through anybody from Washington, D.C. Didn't have any idea this was illegal. You know, and the FBI agents say, well, you know, we may want to talk again, and if you want to talk again, call us back. Well, I think Fortenberry got alarmed by the tenor of the kind of a surprise uh, interrogation from the FBI, and they organized a second meeting with the FBI in July of 2019 and they asked the same question well did you know this money came from this Gilbert Shiguri and you know was funneled through this Washington DC guy and Fortenberry said no and you know he also added you know if I really if I'd known that I would have you know I would have hung up immediately um, well this is where it kind of gets interesting because you know from 2019 Really, nothing happens until until this spring, when the federal government announces they've reached a deferred prosecution agreement with Shiguri, amounting to a one point eight million dollar fine, pretty healthy fine, and that he had agreed to cooperate along with everybody else that was involved in funneling this money to Fortenberry. Um. And, and part of the federal indictment, you know, he's indicted on two, on three counts that he, he lied to the federal folks in those two interviews in 2019. So those two separate counts. And then he failed to, uh, he tried to conceal, uh, that these were illegal by not amending his, uh, federal election commission reports, you know, to say where money really came from. 
But you know, one of the fit, one of the things I think I find really interesting is that Lee Terry was not indicted, and he told me as soon as the federal government called him, the federal agents called him, he he moved to get rid of the money. Um, I mean, he said I was going to give it back to uh, you know Shiguri or his his intermediary, and the Fed said, "No, don't do that. That would." you know, alert them that something's up, but, you know, so, um, Lee Terry donated it to charity. Well, Fortenberry eventually did donate the $30,000 to two charities, but he didn't do it immediately. And that's one of the things the federal government pointed out that they filed another motion yesterday and said that really raised their suspicions that, you know, uh, this was this was bad money. I mean, if he knew, um, he should have got rid of the money right away. He should have donated that money in 2018 when he first got a phone call, and um, he didn't do it till the pretty much the fall of 2019. So, so since then, <laughs> there's been this kind of war of words between federal prosecutors and and Fortenberry's people about. You know, was this a setup, or did this congressman, congressman, you know, intentionally deceive uh, a federal investigation? Well, yes. I mean, I have a couple questions as far as that goes. One of which is for Shiguri to try to influence U.S. policy in the Middle East. I guess why target Jeff Fortenberry and Lee Terry? What is it about them that would have helped him get leverage there? Right. Well, what, one of the indictments said that he he sent the money uh, to you know little known congressmen in small states where the money would 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 make a bigger splash, so to speak. Um, of course, that doesn't really. I don't know how much that washes because he also gave money to Mitt Romney and gave money to a California congressman. So. But, you know, Fortenberry, uh, they said, you know, that these congressmen had similar interests to them uh, when it came to the Middle East. I mean, the middle, the intermediary who gave the money to Fort, Fortenberry's fundraiser um, was an official with a group called In Defense of Christians. And they're all about defending uh, Christians in the Middle East from persecution and and um, Fortenberry's been active in that uh, effort and spoke and written about it in some of his Fort reports, he called them, his monthly columns. Um, he's just a very, uh, that's one of his issues. Yeah. So, I mean, I think they'd look at Fortenberry as somebody who thought like them. And, you know, that's not uncommon. You know, groups give money to politicians who 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 think like them and support their causes and and that's that's the way washington works if you're just joining us i'm talking today with omaha world herald reporter paul hamill about the recent federal indictment against representative jeff fortenberry join the conversation on social media using hashtag riverside chats well so my understanding is fortenberry has alleged that he was set up by the fbi that this is some kind of intentional and concocted case against him rather than maybe a misunderstanding of some sort so kind of similar to my last question do we have any idea why Fortenberry thinks he would be personally targeted by the FBI in a fabricated case? 
Well, I mean, they've they've made the case that, you know, nothing was happening really uh, during the Trump administration. Uh, and, and this indictments only came down after Trump was out of office and a Democrat was in the White House. They've, they've made that case. Um, and, you know, they've also said that, you know, the FBI is being weaponized uh, against political opposition. Uh, you know, I mean, Fort Berry contention is that, you know, he didn't know this money was from a, somebody from in Nigeria. And, you know, once they figured that out, they got frustrated and they wanted to get him on something else. So they fed him information that the money was illegal. And then a year later asked him, well, what about this money? Is it illegal? And he claimed he just didn't recall all the details of that conversation. Now, you know, I think it's up to, it's going to be up to a court to whether that's credible or not. I mean, I think, uh, you know, do we, you and I remember everything that was said in a conversation a year ago. And uh, if, if you kind of believe Fortenberry's people, you know, he gets a lot of calls about, you know, fundraisers and who's raising money. And uh, he could have just forgot. Well, it'll be up to a, a judge in a court to, to, I guess, decide if that's true or not. A federal judge has signed a pretrial order barring Fortenberry from possessing or being left alone with evidence gathered by confidential informants. Now, I don't, I don't know a ton about these types of trials. Is that is that standard procedure, or does that speak to anything unique? Uh, that, you know, I think there's some disagreement about that, but I think that is that's not exactly standard uh, operating procedures. Um, you know, usually, and, and he and he can view the evidence. It's just he can't take it back with him to Nebraska or give it to anybody else. So it's, uh, I mean, I think, uh, you know, there's a lawyer in Lincoln who made a big deal of that. They really, really don't trust his congressman. They won't let, let him take this evidence home. But uh, his attorneys say this isn't that big a deal. That happens a lot. Well, do you think, I mean, you said at the beginning of this interview that he has had a safe seat. He's been reelected for, you know, many times over many years, almost two decades. So, I mean, does does something like this make waves with Nebraska voters? You know, I think they're all trying to sort out um, this this episode. I mean, I think Portberry had the reputation of being, you know, pretty squeaky clean and, um, uh, you know, upholding morals and, and, and religious rights and things like that. And and to have this allegation against him, I think, confuses some people. Um, it, it certainly has caused ways within Republican circles. Because they, you know, they, they're counting on this seat remaining in Republican hands. And, you know, it, you know the next election is going to be all about, you know, who retains control of Congress? Will it be the Republicans or the Democrats? So, I mean, it's caused alarm. It's caused some people to speculate that, you know, there are people that are waiting to run for Congress. They just, you know, can't challenge Fortenberry. Didn't think they would beat him. But if this seat opens up, boy, there's going to be a, 
going to be a stampede to file for this office, I believe. Is there an indication that he's intending to either resign or continue to run for re-election? Well, none from him. I mean, the indication from the Fortierberry camp is they're going to fight this, you know, to the end. Um, I mean, there's there's some precedents. There's been a couple other congressmen who've been indicted and re-elected. But, you know, if you're convicted, I mean, you're you're really restricted on what you can do in Congress. Already, he's had to uh, give up his, his seats on congressional committees. He can't participate in uh, uh, committee work while indicted. So, I mean, there's some question out there about how effective can he be while he's under indictment. Um, and there's some speculation that Maybe he won't run for re-election, but he'll want to retain his seat till the end of his term next year. I mean, there's all kinds of speculation. There's, um, if you wanted to get a laundry list of people uh, who might run for Congress if Jeff Fortberry didn't, it wouldn't be hard to do. Well, there's also other precedents that are kind of, uh, you know, they get into more difficult territory and difficult sort of speculation. But I know uh, former representatives Chris Collins and Duncan Hunter were indicted while in office. They were forced to resign. Uh, They were also early and avid supporters of former President Donald Trump, and both were ultimately pardoned. So it seems like there's also kind of a sense that, I mean, do you think Fortenberry, is, is there a calculation that maybe depending on how the next presidential race goes, that even if things don't go well for him, it's not, it maybe won't matter that much based on who's in power? That he might get a pardon. Yeah, I mean, sure. Um, boy, you're looking way ahead. I mean, <laughs> I, think, I think the Fortenberry people are just trying to keep treading water here. They want to... You know, they want to push back on every statement the prosecutors make in their court briefs. And they want people to know that we're fighting this to the end. You know, I I think it all comes down to whether or not he can still be an effective representative. You know, and if it's if the charges get dropped uh, and, you know, the prosecution is disgraced. Yeah, you could probably do that. But uh, you know, they've they've put together quite a bit of evidence, and a lot of it is recorded phone calls. I think it's going to be tough for him to hang in there. Uh, could he get reelected? I mean, I, I, you know, I'm the guy who wrote about Charlie Jansen, the state auditor, drinking beer for three hours a day in a bar while he's supposed to be, you know, fighting corruption and waste in government in Nebraska as the state auditor. And he got easily reelected. I mean, in part because the Democrats didn't have a, a very credible candidate. But sure, I mean, the Republican uh, majority in Nebraska uh, didn't seem to mind that Charlie Jansen wasn't on the job. Maybe, they, maybe they, maybe they don't. Uh, maybe they feel the same way about Jeff Fortenberry. Do we know anything else about this Gilbert Shiguri guy, what he's up to? I mean, is, is there a sense that he is still trying to influence other, uh, you know, elected officials? Well, I don't think he is right now. I mean, he agreed to, uh, you know, pay a quite a hefty fine. <laughs> we had uh, another reporter do a story about just who he was or is. 
I, I, I think if he's wise, he uh, might want to, you know, be a little low key these days. But you know, he's he's known internationally because uh, he got in trouble uh, in Nigeria. I mean, he he was an advisor to a Nigerian dictator in the 1990s. There was some uh, you know speculation that. You know, he walked away with some money that was really Nigeria's money. And, you know, he ended up giving that money back. And way back in the day, he gave uh, quite a large contribution to uh, the Clinton Foundation. He donated at least a million dollars to the Clinton Foundation in the 90s. So he's not afraid to use his money. But uh, I got to think after, you know, we're, you know, six months after he agreed to pay a $1.8 million fine. He's, he may be sitting out some things right now. All right. So as we wrap up here, what's, what's the timeline look like for the Fortenberry, uh, any, whatever's going to happen next with Jeff Fortenberry? Well, they have a, there's a court hearing on the 14th of December to, um, argue his motions to dismiss the charges. One of them, one of the motions, uh, says that, you know, these misstatements, if they were misstatements, were made in Lincoln, Nebraska, and Washington, D.C., so any charges should be filed there, not in California. I think they're trying to get a more friendly court, and that's what the prosecution's claiming and opposing that motion. They said, you know, the investigation originated in California about acts in California, and uh, his statements even though made elsewhere, are material to that investigation in California. So that's the proper venue. So they'll decide those motions sometime next month, I imagine. There's supposed to be a trial, I think, in February now, but I, I doubt that we'll see that happen. There'll be, there'll be more motions and, and more delays, I think, you know, whether this gets to trial the next year before the next election, I think it's a real question. So we may be, you know, hanging on to what happens to Jeff Fortenberry for quite a while here. Well, I appreciate your consistent reporting on this. It's been really useful. And anyone, I guess, who wants to learn more can look to the World Herald for that. But thank you for giving us a primer on it today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah. That was Omaha World Herald reporter Paul Hamill talking about the recent federal indictment against Representative Jeff Fortenberry. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. When we come back, the Borough Review's film and TV critic Jared Charles will give a preview of upcoming movies to keep an eye out for this holiday season. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. My parents were what you'd call wandering souls. I must have lived in a half dozen places before I was two years old. But eventually, my family wandered into this little sawmill town called Walden in northern Colorado. My mom says the town was really kind of hip back then. She'd put me and my brother in a little red wagon and pull us downtown. When we moved there in 74... There was a lot going on. There was um, an art supply store. There was a health food store. 
there was a hardware store right on Main Street. Well, I remember the uh, ice cream parlor and toy store. Yeah, and and your dad immediately started playing music with the rhythm wrestlers. The town welcomed us in, and for the first time, we settled down. But by the time I went to college, Walden was changing, fast. The town mayor, Jim Dustin, describes what happened. It used to have a sawmill. It used to have a uh, coal mine. It used to have a railroad. All those things went away. And even a recent fracking boom didn't revive things. And now my hometown has shrunk to nearly half as many people as when I was a kid. I wondered, just how small can a town shrink before it just disappears? From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. Please leave us a review while you're there. I'm talking now with Jared Charles, who reviews film and television at the Borough Reviews. Charles gives a preview of upcoming films to keep an eye out for this holiday season. Here's our conversation. All right, so I'm talking with Jared Charles about upcoming movie releases, stuff that's out now. Obviously, I think the thing that hangs over this conversation is that the last year and a half has kind of upended the movie industry in ways that were not clear. Like, how much does it bounce back? How much does it not? Are there audiences that are going to go see movies for adults? Is it just going to be popcorn fair? So we're in the middle of that as Oscar season happens. And last year, there wasn't that much of an Oscar season, right? It was just a bunch of sort of small movies that got released on streaming. Right. Uh, and that was interesting. But this year, they're trying to have them come out in theaters again. So let me let me start broadly. How's the state of movies right now? So that's a really good question. You know, we just got done with a Thanksgiving weekend and historically the holidays have been the times that the box office really flares up and you see that kind of trend upward all through the new year. Um, so historically, you know, Thanksgiving weekend should be a pretty good weekend. Um, the five day total right now is sitting at about 140 million Um that's down 46% comparatively to pre-pandemic. So that would have been 2019. Um, that Thanksgiving weekend there, for instance, raked in you know more money than we could ever imagine, um, especially nowadays. And so when you see the industry trending, it's still trending upward, but overall down 46%. That still um, indicates to us anyway, as analysts, as scholars, that we have a long way to go. Well, and I know like one metric that's kind of oddly useful is that Ridley Scott had two movies come out in about a month here. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the, he had the last duel that came out in, I think, early October, maybe. Um, right. And that just, you know, crashed and burned immediately. Nobody seemed to see it. And so the, the narrative that I remember from that was 
movies for adults are not drawing audiences that certain like older demographics who want to go see something that's more akin to what they're now used to on streaming services like HBO. Maybe they're not ready to go back to the theater yet. Uh, but then he had a new movie that just came out uh, called House of Gucci, which seems to be doing pretty well, right? Is is that just a difference in content? Is it just that people want to see campy Lady Gaga more so than they want to see mulleted Matt Damon? Or what, what's, what's <laughs> happening there? <laughs> so certainly, um, you know, you come for the cast in House of Gucci and you stay for the accents, right? I mean, that's been the general consensus from everyone. Um, I think it all is a matter of marketing, right? Um, the Last Duel's marketing, unfortunately, didn't seem to stick as much as House of Gucci. And I think a large part of that was the cast, right? Um, not saying that The Last Duel's cast, you know, in any way would, you know, disaffect people from going to the the movies. But I think right now, you know, Lady Gaga clearly... Um, is a powerhouse star. And then you also have Adam Driver, who, you know, people are are getting more and more familiar with each each show. And so I feel like House of Gucci just was in that kind of category where the cast is really the driving force behind that film doing, you know, moderately well at the box office. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the the past couple of weeks here. Well, Ghostbusters Afterlife, you know, is overperforming compared to what the industry thought. I know the initial projections were at like 40 percent, 40 million. And then, you know, you go into something like Encanto, which is a huge Pixar film. You know, people are very familiar with Pixar, Coco recently. um, And that movie, you know, did basically $27 million over the three day weekend. And um, and I so I feel like the conversation about whether or not people are more invested in kind of these bigger budget, um, family-friendly, more blockbuster films than they are smaller independent cinema. I mean, certainly there's an argument and a conversation to be had there. And I feel like that's where streaming is in the right place. Um, you know, maybe some of these smaller films can can get new life and new legs on an HBO Max, on an Amazon Prime. Um, but certainly, I mean, Industry-wide, we've still got a long way to go, no matter what movie you're releasing. So uh, what are some of the titles that you're excited about that are coming up in the next month? So, yeah, upcoming, we have um, quite a bit of movies that are releasing specifically, you know, around the holiday time. Obviously, um, you have West Side Story, which is releasing on December 10th. Um, I know plenty of people who are waiting anxiously for that one. But you also have something like Spider-Man No Way Home, which is releasing on December 17th. Um, That one, the advanced ticket sales, if you've been trying to get tickets, uh, I wish you all the luck in the world. Uh, A lot of third-party service crashes on, you know, apps and on websites for movies and uh, third-party servicers like Fandango. Um, Kind of what's on my radar for uh, December anyway, we have Nightmare Alley, which is the latest um, directorial uh, feat from Guillermo del Toro. Um, and that movie is kind of a classic take on like a classical uh, neo-noir thriller. Um, it stars Bradley Cooper. And the cast is just incredible. I mean, you have Kate Blanchett, Willem Dafoe, Rooney Mara, um, Tony Collette, who a lot of people, um, including yourself, I know, um, appreciate for her work on movies like Hereditary and Knives Out as well. Um, and so Nightmare Alley is kind of 
kind of where my aim is at right now, just because I love a good neo-noir thriller and it's Guillermo del Toro. So we're in for a treat with that one. And then I know a lot of people are probably going to be excited for The Matrix Resurrections, which releases on Wednesday, December 22nd. Um, But you also have prequels to the Kingsman franchise uh, from Matthew Vaughn, The Kingsman is a prequel that's going to be releasing on Wednesday, December 22nd as well. And then obviously Sing 2, which I know many people who are excited about that. Um, huge cast in Sing 2, including Matthew McConaughey, among many others. So there's a lot to look forward to theatrically, for sure. Now, so Nightmare Alley uh, is kind of interesting because my understanding was Leonardo DiCaprio was at one point going to play the lead, and then Bradley mm-hmm. Cooper ended up taking it over. But then that also was the case, uh, not not with the lead, but in the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie, Licorice Pizza. I believe he, Leonardo DiCaprio, was also offered the role of John Peters in that, who now is played by Bradley Cooper. Uh, but then Leonardo DiCaprio does have another movie coming out, which is called Don't Look Up, Don't which look up. I think yeah. that looks great. Uh, that fits right into anyone who listens to this show knows I'm completely terrified about uh, the state of the world right now. And that seems like maybe not like the movie that you're going to want to sit around and have fun with your family watching on Christmas Day. But uh, that looks like a great movie. What's your take on Don't Look Up? So Don't Look Up's uh, super interesting. I love Jennifer Lawrence. Um, And so for me, Don't Look Up kind of seems like that fun kind of zany Adam McKay film that we we know and love. You know, Vice was probably not my favorite movie of that year that it came out. I think it was uh, 2019. But Vice certainly was uh, a ride. And I feel like with Don't Look Up, we're going to be treated to the same kind of zany Uh, back and forth that we've gotten uh, previously. And, you know, I think specifically if you've watched the trailer for this movie, that interaction between Jonah Hill and the rest of the cast is just something to look forward to. And I'm really excited to see Jonah Hill get get more of a bigger role. Um, I don't know if you watched it, but his directorial debut mid-90s was just incredible. Um, So I'm looking forward to more of, you know, some of the movies that he's going to direct in the future. But as of right now, as an actor, I love to see him in a role like that. Yeah. And well, so it's interesting because uh, I know don't look up the, the plot is uh, that a a asteroid is about to hit the world and destroy everything. And you have these two sort of mid-level astronomers who are trying to warn the, the president and everybody, Hey, we should take this existential risk seriously. And everybody's sort of ignoring it, which is, you know, a clear allegory for climate change. But then also I know McKay talked about how they had to film it during the pandemic. And he said, it felt like this movie is equally about just ignoring reality in so many ways. And the fact that people just choose to exist in sort of like their manufactured version of what's a real problem right now and what's not. And Mm -hmm. I love that uh, we're able to start to incorporate some of this into a movie that doesn't look terrible. A lot of the times it feels like trying to adjust to, I think the post 2016 world is something that some movies are starting to sort of get there. Others are still kind of navigating like, what is this? Especially like, the post-pandemic world, I don't think we're at a point where really people know how to incorporate that into movies really yet, or maybe they're just starting to figure it out, or even like wondering if they want to. So, I mean, is this the start of a wave of movies where maybe it's not explicitly about people living through COVID-19, but we're ushering in this sort of like apocalyptic uh, (laughs) kind of feeling? And uh, I don't know, just like, is that chaos? uh, Is that something that's here to stay, you think, for movies in in the coming years? Certainly. I mean, you've seen an upward trend of and, you know, it's it's hard to say because I don't necessarily want to call it nihilism, but there is some sense of nihilistic tendencies to some of the movies that we've seen, you know, post 
post pandemic. But I also want to reiterate that this is something that we were seeing, you know, post 2016 even. So it's um, yeah, we're seeing an upward trend of it, certainly. Um, But what I love about Don't Look Up is the fact that this movie is trying to have fun with it. Um, which is why I'm saying it's teetering on that kind of nihilistic take. But um, I imagine that going forward, you know, a lot of movies have addressed the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, You know, one of my favorite movies actually from 2020 was uh, Host, um, which was a Shutter original that was filmed entirely on Zoom. And so I feel like, you know, movies have, they've not only accepted kind of this post this post-pandemic outlook on life, but also um, adapting to the the changing ways of which we can make films too. Um, there's been a lot of innovation out of out of the pandemic era, and I I hope that the one takeaway, even if even if more films start to take on this kind of nihilistic aspect and outlook on life, I feel like the innovation that's been there throughout the past two years, I feel like we need and i don't want it to go away anytime soon so my hope is that we get more fun films like don't look up that kind of like to play around with the idea that you know it's all going to burn down yeah i love i'm ready for our generation's uh dr strange love or network mm-hmm. uh but yeah it's it's funny that that comes out christmas day because yeah it just it seems like it's going to be a bummer ultimately even though a fun a fun bummer uh, but okay, so other ones, you know, I, I mentioned Licorice Pizza. I know a lot of people are excited about the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Do you have a take mm-hmm. on that one? So I haven't gotten around to seeing that one yet. Um, unfortunately, when you work in an industry like mine, it's you're bombarded constantly with um, with different things to watch. Um, I just actually watched The uh, Humans on um, Hulu, which is an original movie, um, kind of centers around a Thanksgiving uh, dinner, and it kind of has a horror a horror-esque element to it that I think is super well utilized for a movie like that, which is bare bones, um, cast bare bones, set um, a lot of its tight quarters around this house, and this family's coming to terms with some of their, you know, skeletons in the closet and how they operate as a family. And for me, I think that The Humans is probably the closest thing to a really, really good movie that I've seen this month. Um, For those of you who don't know, it was an adaptation from Broadway, essentially. And the writer of it, Stephen Karam, also directed this movie. And so it takes place kind of in this Pennsylvania home. And like I said, it's barren cast, barren set. But what he's able to maneuver around with the camera and close quarters and really make you feel that sense of tension and urgency is something that I've been delighted to over the past couple of weeks. And that, that one stars uh, Richard Jenkins and Stephen Yun. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. And Beanie Feldstein, for those of you who know. Um, I know that that movie specifically um, is a Tony award-winning play. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to know, as far as next year in the Oscar conversation, whether or not that pops up. But certainly... I'm sure that Paul Thomas Anderson's film will. Have you have you checked out Licorice Pizza? No, no, I haven't, but I'm, I'm excited, too. I like pretty much all of his movies. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Jared Charles about some upcoming films to keep an eye out for this holiday season. What are you watching? What are you excited for? Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Um, Stephen Yun, he, so he was in one of my favorite movies of the last few years, which was Burning. Um, and I know there's a new Haruki Murakami adaptation called Drive My Car that's coming out. Uh, I don't know when it's going to make it to Omaha uh, or Nebraska, but 
basically, I don't know. I've, I've been a big Haruki Murakami fan for a while. And I it, seriously, Burning is one of those movies that I think when I first watched it, I liked it, but I didn't realize how much it impacted me. And I think about it still almost every day. I think it's just a masterpiece. You like that one? I do. Um, I have never been so utterly shocked at an end. Like just, and I can't even describe the feeling of watching that movie. You know, it's so, it's so intense and weird, but, but by the time you get to the end of the movie and the culmination of everything that happens, it's, it's so heavy and it does linger with you for quite some time. Cause I remember months after that film um, that I had watched the film, I, I, I thought about it almost constantly and it's still on my rotating like top films of all time list. I just absolutely love it. Um, yeah, no, Stephen Young's a fantastic actor. You know, I started watching the walking dead, um, you know, when it, when it started way long ago and he was instantly one of my favorite like character actors. And I really think that he can take himself and he can just dive into a role and truly just invest everything that he has into a character. And it's always so fun to watch. And that performance of his in that movie is haunting. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, I, I can't even speak enough kind words about that. Yeah. I, uh, I'm so excited uh, just to see all the upcoming movies he makes and uh, whatever he's up to. Another one that's on my radar is come on, come on the new Mike Mills one. Uh, with Joaquin Phoenix, which I, I'm considering going to see tonight. I've, I'm busy for most of the night. It's one of those ones where I'm like, I might just have to see this at like 9.15 some night when I uh, am done working on things. But uh, Mike Mills made Beginners, which is a movie that just devastates me every time I watch it. And I'm very excited to see what he's up to now. Have you had a chance to see Come On, Come On? I have not. But um, I know I remember reading an interview from Joaquin Phoenix um, months ago when they started production on this. And he was talking about how it was like one of his favorite projects that he, he's ever made. And if he's saying that, then I have to I have to see it eventually. <laughs> All right. So what else have we not mentioned here that you're excited about? So there's a few things that um, uh, we haven't talked about. Um, we have The Tender Bar, which is uh, the latest from George Clooney. It's going to be an Amazon Prime uh, movie that comes out on December 17th. I'm sure they're doing some type of hybrid limited theatrical release with it as well. Um, and so that one is probably among my most anticipated because a, I love George Clooney, but also, um, this is going to showcase more of like Ben Affleck's acting side, which every time he just completely envelops in a role, like I, I love to watch it. Um, right now it's funny cause it's at a 46% on the tomato meter. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be bad, but it's one of those movies that I think that, you know, trying to look at it from a critic's perspective may, may not be the best, but it's the story of um, J.R., who is played by Ty Sheridan, um, which is a, uh, who is a fatherless boy growing up in the glow of a bar where the bartender, his uncle, um, played by Ben Affleck, is the sharpest and most col- colorful of an assortment of quirky and demonstrative father figures. So you have this this story that centers around this father-son relationship in ways, and I feel like um, ben Affleck can always bring his A game when when he's in a role like that, and so that's probably among my most anticipated. And then, as far as um, you know, other movies that are coming out, um, I know there's being the Ricardos, which is going to be a movie with Javier Bardem and um, Nicole Kidman, I believe, and that one centers around Lucille Ball and kind of the life of Lucille Ball and. I encourage you, if you love I Love Lucy, if you love that old sitcom, um, to check that out. It's kind of a biography and a drama. Um, but 
again, you know, we've been talking a lot about character actors today and you have Javier Bardem and Nicole Kidman in a role. And I feel like uh, you can't get much more of a perfect casting than that. Yeah. And I know you write about a lot of these. You talk about a lot of these, uh, both movies, TV, games. So the Borough Reviews, are there any exciting teases for what uh, people can expect if they head over to the Borough Reviews lately? Yeah. So, um, you know, we didn't get out necessarily as much Halloween content as we would have wanted, but we have a lot of horror writers on our team. So we're always looking for the next greatest thing in horror and um, Shudder's putting out a lot of stuff in the month of December, a lot of holiday themed content. So if you're one that likes Shudder and like Shudder Originals, we have a lot of Halloween themed Christmas content coming out in the next month. So look forward to that. Yeah. Okay. One last question. Uh, favorite movie of the year so far? Ooh, um, there is something about Bo Burnham's inside that just still resonates with me every single day. Um, from from the way that he was able to capture such dread and feeling of hopelessness and guise it, you know, with comedy and with um, entertainment, I think is one of the best, kind of one of the best films of the year to really just completely dive headfirst into kind of what we've been talking about, which is that how do you feel post pandemic? You know, how, how have we changed as people? And I feel like that's one of the greatest examples from this year, particularly of a film that really resonates with everyone. So I encourage you, if you like stand up, if you like comedy and music to check out Bo Burnham's inside on Netflix. Well, thank you for this primer on what people can look for. There's a million things out there at all times. Uh, being able to curate the just mountains of content is important. And I'm glad you're doing that at Brewer Reviews. And I'm glad you were able to come today. We'll have to have you back on to talk Oscars once that, uh, once that conversation is more relevant. Uh, yes, I would love to talk. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember that you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.